Let the past die. Kill it if you have to. That's the only way to become what you are meant to be. So says Kylo Ren in the newest trilogy of Star Wars, a trilogy which many of us prefer to pretend does not exist. However, I do enjoy this particular line because I think it gives some explanation to how Christians are supposed to relate to the old self and to sin. We are to kill it. Let the past die. I mean, it is easier said than done, is it not? It's that old proverb. Old habits die hard. It's true, isn't it? I mean, it is so hard to give up even the most simple things in life. I recently, for about 16 days now and counting, have, have given up coffee. I'm doing all right, thanks for asking. But it's been really hard, and, and there's many times in the morning and afternoon and evening where I fantasize about having a ceramic mug warming my hands and that glorious scent of ground beans with water poured over it just filling up my nostrils. Old habits die hard. Change is hard. There is this weird pool for those of us who have gotten rid of old habits, who have overcome old sins. There's a draw to come back to them again. Brothers and sisters, we have an adversary who knows this, who commissions the unseen host of evil powers to come and tempt us towards these things and away from Christ. Indeed, we have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, waiting for someone to devour. Satan would love for you, Christian, to return to your old way of life, and to be ensnared in sin. He would love to divide the body of Christ, to divide Jesus' church, with your sin. We've kind of been uh, working through Ephesians chapter 4, and we've really hit the brakes and slowed down here in the last six verses. And we've kind of used uh, verse 27 there, give no opportunity or place to the devil, as kind of a, a, a guide, I guess, to look at these commands that Paul is giving to us. And so we've said we want to make sure that the devil has no opportunity to sow division in the church. And so we want to be vigilant and guard our speech, think about how and when we are getting angry. And this morning we come to the part where we want to talk about our old habits. We want to make sure that we're guarding ourselves against old sins and that we are practicing genuine repentance. Repentance that is humble and habitual. Repentance that is true. 
And so you can, you can see there our exhortation this morning is going to be grow up. That's in line with chapter 4 here. Remember, Paul is concerned with calling the church to grow up in unity and maturity in Christ. And so we're saying grow up, give the devil no opportunity to divide the church. And you can see there just simply repent. Repent continually. Before we, we get there, though, let's remind ourselves of the, the larger context. We've split the book of Ephesians into two parts. Part one, chapters one through three, we have said this is mostly doctrine, right? Not a whole lot of imperatives here. Paul's just telling us about what God has done. And then the second half of Ephesians, there's three more chapters, it's four through six, is about devotion. What we are to do in response to what God has done. The order is very, very important. Because the sections we are in now are not telling us how to become Christians or how to make ourselves right with God. They're telling us how to live now that we have been made right with God. Doctrine comes before the devotion. It's the the foundation. You say, what are those, those doctrines that Paul wants us to get our minds around in those first few chapters? Well, particularly that God is the author and finisher of our faith. That we have been brought to life from the dead spiritually by the Holy Spirit of God when we heard the gospel and believed it. We are being called to recognize that in Christ we were chosen before the foundation of the world to be adopted as sons and daughters. Paul wants us to come to terms, to grips with this truth. He wants us to, to kind of get our try, to begin to get our arms around God's beautiful, scandalous love for his people. I mean, he even prays in chapter 3 that we would have strength to comprehend God's love. Strength that can only come from the Holy Spirit. He's like, God, give these people Holy Spirit-empowered strength so that they might understand the depths of your love for them. It really is an incredible love. Think about it, friends. God owed us nothing. He owes nothing to anyone but death stretched out across eternity in hell. That's what God owes every human being that has ever lived. And yet, because of the great love with which he loves us, with which he has loved his people, he has resolved to reconcile us to himself. We are owed nothing and we were walking in darkness, slaves to our passions. And at that time, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. When we were dead in sin, God chose to make us alive to himself. That is wonderful news, is it not? God saves sinners like you and me. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, I want you to know this morning that you can know God. You can be known by God. You can experience the love that he has for you. You'll simply repent of your sin and put your faith in Him. Doctrine, the front 
half of the book is teaching us that we have been adopted into the family of God, made alive, reconciled to one another and to the God we were made to know. Now the second half is about devotion. It's telling us, saying, now that you've been born again, you've been given the new birth, it's time to learn to walk, to live according to your family name. You're, you're in the family of God, and so now it's time to walk godly. And so Paul's laying those things out, and as we've said, he's called us to maturity and unity throughout this chapter, and now he is laying down for us some commands that will help us to grow in our godliness. So that's doctrine and devotion. And you see there in, uh, in that section between seven, verse 17 in chapter 4 to the end in verse 32, um, in verse 22 particularly, Paul kind of summarizes this with a, a wonderful illustration that is just looking like taking off uh, your old clothes and putting on new clothes. And so we've kind of summarized that as we've walked through this little section for the last couple times I've preached. And we've just said, this section is about being off with the old and on with the new. It's taking off your, your 2020 sweatpants and, and your, your Crocs and putting on you know, jeans and things that are appropriate to go outside in. So it's a, a new self, a new day. And so we want to be off with the old and on with the new. And in particular, we're going to talk about what that looks like in regards to repentance this morning. You can see today's outline before you. We have a picture of repentance in verse 28, and we are going to talk about what repentance is not and then what repentance is. Let's pray, and then we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. And what we are not, make us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 17 and read on down through verse 28. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, that's as the world does, as those who are outside of saving relationship with God. Don't walk like the world. Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for or because we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no place, opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, 
so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let's read verse 28 one more time. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We have a complete transformation, a a total repentance in the life of the thief. Paul is saying, if thieving was how you used to make your living, that's not how you can make your living anymore if you've become a Christian. Your change needs to be complete and total. You, You used to steal from others because you wanted something for yourself, and now you need to turn around and live for others. You need to serve them rather than yourself. You're not just called to go and get honest work. You're also called to get honest work so that you might have something to share with anyone in need. There's not just the negative of the command, just with the eighth commandment, right? It's not just do not steal. It's also the positive side of it. Be generous. Give to others. And so what we see here is Paul is saying when you encounter Jesus, he changes you. And there will be a complete inversion of your priorities. Others, they were like nested beneath you, right? You were number one, and then, you know, things you liked were number two, and then somewhere down the list were other people. And he's saying that gets gets flipped upside down, and God gets set atop all of it. So now you are committed to serving God and serving your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is quite the change that Paul is recommending here. Some of you are, I want to say old enough, but seasoned enough to, to know about like, like westerns and you know, older history and things. Some of you were telling me about gun smoke a few weeks back. I guess that's a thing. Uh, still no idea. But, but there is a, a figure um, who was like a real life western, right? You guys know Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch? Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch, man, they were notorious for you kids in the room. Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch are like the heroes of thieves. Uh, they used to rob banks, and, you know, I imagine if, it was, if it's the way it was in my mind, they had handkerchiefs around their faces, and they would get on trains, old-fashioned stick up, and, and hijack the things. Famous for thieving. Now imagine if, if Butch Cassidy and the Wild Bunch went from being thieves and hijacking trains to like settling down and working as dentists right honest living giving away some of the extra that they have to others this is this is the kind of change that paul is calling all christians to he's saying those sins that you once indulged can no longer define you You may no longer pursue those sins. Because you know Jesus, it's time to follow Jesus and to honor God by living in a way that accords with His character. Friends, to repent is to have a changed heart so that you want the things that God wants. A changed mind so that you begin to think the way that God thinks. And the ultimate result of it is a changed life so that you begin to walk in love the way that Jesus walks. And repentance is is turning from worshiping yourself, 
and playing God in your life. Turning away from that to worshiping Jesus and submitting to Christ the King. If we have been made alive, if we really know God, then we will be marked by repentance. You've probably heard me say this many times, but I'll repeat it once more. Martin Luther once said, repentance is the whole of the Christian life. And what he meant by that is, we don't just repent once. You know, reposition our body at the end of an aisle, at the end of a church service, and and say, all right, I confess Jesus as Lord, and then go back to business as usual. Now, what he means by that is that the Christian life is repenting from sin every day, resolving to to turn away from, from self and sin and towards serving God and following Christ each and every moment of each and every day. And so we have a question before us that we need to answer. Have I repented? Am I repenting? To answer that question, I want to talk a little bit about what repentance is not. What repentance is not. Repentance is not just a feeling. It's not just feeling bad or saying the right words. It's not even just doing the right things. Look with me at at 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. Paul writes this. For godly grief or sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation, life, without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. There is a genuine and real repentance that leads to life, salvation, life without regret, satisfaction, peace with God. And there is a repentance that is false. A repentance that that lies with its looks. Now, it has some of those markers. It, it looks like repentance, but it's not the real thing. And I fear that many of us are guilty of practicing this counterfeit repentance subtly. So we, we feel really bad about that thing we did or this sin that we're attached to. We feel bad about it. We, we even confess, Lord, I'm, I'm wrong and, and you are right. But at the end of the day, we still find ourselves with the same sin settled down. Our words are right, our feelings seem right, but the truth is we want to make friends with our old sins and our old habits, and so we, we entertain them instead of ending them. And the devil loves worldly repentance. It looks pious, but it is pitiful. It appears righteous, but it is rotten. I mean, Satan is happy to tempt us towards old habits because his goal is that you and I would die hard apart 
from Christ. He loves when we confuse worldly sorrow with godly sorrow. He loves when we confuse counterfeit repentance with true repentance. I do it's probably I probably need to give a caveat here. This is not a call to perfection if you are a Christian. I'm not calling you to that. But repentance is a fighting against sin, a following of Jesus. It doesn't mean that you will never stumble, but it does mean your direction will be true towards Christ. Christians are not perfect. We are not, not called to live a perfect life, but we are called to be in progress and to pursue perfection. So I don't want you to walk away questioning your salvation if you are struggling with a particular sin. But I, I do want to say true repentance will show up in actual life change or not. It will show up in the everyday nitty-gritty of your life or not. I think a good example of this in Scripture is with Pharaoh in Exodus. Um, you guys remember the story. You're probably really familiar with it. Pharaoh is, is the mighty, mean king. He has the uh, people of Israel enslaved. And God comes to Moses in the burning bush, and he says, Moses, your whole life is about to be reoriented. Everything is going to be changed for you. I would like you to go to Pharaoh and to ask him to let my people go. And Moses is like, no way, I'm not going to do that. I, I don't talk good, God. Uh, I can't do it. God's like, no, you're going to go. And he's like, well, can I, can I take Aaron with me? He's a better speaker than me. Can Aaron go? Yes, Aaron can go. But fine, Aaron's going. You're going, Moses. And so, so we, we have that whole story. Moses and Aaron, they, they go to Pharaoh. They say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Over and over again. Let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses. A river turns to blood, livestock die, frogs and flies fill every space, lightning strikes, hail falls, darkness comes, the firstborn die. And all along the way, between these plagues, we find Pharaoh well, repenting. Or do we? Look with me at, at Exodus chapter 8. And verse 8 says, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Sounds pretty good, right? But then you drop down to verse 15 after things have calmed down a little bit. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite or a respite, he hardened his heart would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Well, later in the same chapter, uh, verse 28, another plague, some more repentance. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Verse 32, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Exodus 9 Verse 27, 
Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Verse 34, But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. He and his servants. Exodus 10, verse 16. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. And in verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Right words, right feelings, no change. There is a godly grief, a godly sorrow that produces death. Remember what happens to Pharaoh. He says, go, eventually, after that final plague. But where does he end up? Well, chasing God's people through the Red Sea as it's split apart, stuck in the mud, and eventually buried in a watery grave from which he would never arise. Worldly sorrow, counterfeit repentance, leads to death. It does not produce life. Another example is it's King Saul. One of my favorite examples of this. In 1 Samuel, he's chasing David all around. Remember, Saul is king. He disobeys the word of the Lord. Samuel tells him, now that you were the, kind of the people's choice here, and now I'm going to get God's choice. David is going to be king. And Saul doesn't like that. And he pursues David throughout the book, trying to find him and kill him though David has done nothing but good to him. There's this one episode, which I just particularly love. Uh, he's, he's trying to find where David is, and he doesn't recognize just how close he is. And so he, he strolls on into a cave to uh, take care of some personal business. And while he's in there, David and his men, providentially, just so happen to be hiding in there. David's men are like, the Lord has given your enemy into your hand, David. Just, it'll be really easy to kill him in his compromised position. Just get on over there, get the job done, whole thing is over. David's like, I'm not going to lift my hand against the Lord's anointed. He's still the king, but you know what? I will crawl over and I'm going to clip the corner of his robe off so I can prove to him that I was in the cave. And so they let Saul finish up whatever he's doing. Saul goes back outside to his men and then David comes to the top of the hill. He's, I imagine in my head, he's, he's waving around that piece of Saul's garment. He says, Saul, I do not want to kill you. You have no reason to pursue me. Out of wickedness comes wickedness and out of me did not come wickedness, but righteousness and mercy and love. I could have killed you, but I refuse to do that. Why are you seeking to kill me? You don't need to try to kill me. I just spared you. I can't come to this story without talking about how it points to Jesus. Right? David's mercy anticipates God's mercy. Right? Jesus comes and dies on the cross for the sins of his people, for whoever will repent and trust in him. He goes into the cave of death so that undeserving sinners 
Saul's, like us, can come out of the grave alive. Love God's mercy throughout all of the Bible. David's mercy, you're saying, Saul, you don't need to kill me. I just had mercy on you. There's no, doesn't need to be any beef between us. And Saul says in 1 Samuel 24, verse 17, he lifts up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Right words, right feelings, but if you know the story, no change. I mean, we have a repeat of this, and I think it's the very next chapter, or it's close. Just following David again, David sees him sleeping down there. The Lord causes like all of these soldiers that are with Saul to remain in this just slumber. And David creeps into the, the camp and takes Saul's spear from beside his head and his water, goes up on a hillside, says, could have done it again. Still didn't. And Saul, again, kind of offers this faux repentance, right feelings, right words. And then again, we find no change. There is a repentance that lies with its looks. You notice the the similarities, right? They both feel bad. King Saul and Pharaoh, they they both even cry. They both say right words, but neither of them change. Brothers and sisters, Honestly, evaluate your life. What old sins are you tempted to continue to entertain? Is there, there a, a sin in your life that you have just said, this is a besetting sin, and instead of actually repenting of it and trying to fight against it, you've just learned to live with it? You made friends with your sins like King Saul and Pharaoh. So we've talked about signs of what repentance is not. This is kind of counterfeit repentance, right? It's not necessarily just having bad feelings. It's not necessarily just saying the the right things. There's a third piece that I also want to bring out here. It's not just doing the right thing. There's a wonderful picture of this in the book of Malachi. Malachi, if you never learned to pronounce it like me for a long time. Uh, But it's Malachi, I think. Uh, Malachi, chapter 1, and the temple has just been rebuilt, and the people are supposed to be worshiping God, and God reminds the people of his wonderful electing love in the first few verses. But then he, he turns around through Malachi to make an accusation against the people. And it's this. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? 
says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Would he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. See God's argument here. If you are going to offer these blind, lame, and sick sacrifices, a gift that was comparable to your governor who's not all that powerful, and he wouldn't accept you or show you favor for it, how on earth are you going to come before me, the almighty God of the universe, creator and sustainer of all things, who has given you explicit commands about how to express your repentance and faith through perfect, blemishless sacrifices? How are you going to come before me with sacrifices that are blind, lame, and sick? The quality of the sacrifice shows God the quality of the people's worship and faith. It is defunct. You see, I think sometimes we have a misconception that hopefully got ironed out in Leviticus that the sacrifices have always been, were always, an avenue through which the people of God expressed their faith in God, in God's promises and in his provision for their sins. And the sacrifices could be made in the right way even, even if they weren't blind and sick, but with the wrong heart and not have the desired effect. You can do the right things with the wrong heart and not be repentant. So you could have all three of these things. I feel really bad. I've said the right thing. God's right. I'm wrong. I'm even doing the right thing and not have real repentance. Because you, like those priests and people in Malachi, and like the Pharisees in the New Testament, one who is honoring God with your lips while your heart is far from Him. There is a repentance that lies with its looks, that offers lip service, not life change. Christian, it is possible to be like those worshipers in Malachi and like the Pharisees. Be warned. Evaluate yourself. I mean, I think we are especially susceptible to this. Are we guilty of performing right actions with dead hearts? Brother Christian, sister Christian, turn to Christ once more this morning. He has plenty of grace for you. He is rich in mercy and He's a big spender. He forgives sinners. He forgives all who come to Him in repentance. And so we've circled back around to it, haven't we? Well, what is repentance? We've talked about what repentance is not. Now we're going to talk about what repentance is. We kind of had a little bit of a partial explanation of it earlier and now going to go uh, tighten up our explanation a little bit here. Repentance is, this is my attempt at a formal definition, uh, repentance is the spirit-empowered response to God's grace. It is a 
change of heart, change of mind, ultimately a changed life. God brings dead people to life, and all of a sudden, our desires, which used to be for sin and for the passions of the flesh and for the course of this world, are now for God, for the things of heaven. We want to follow the course of Christ. Real heart change, real repentance, will lead to not just right words, not just the right feelings, but also the right actions. We have good examples of this in the New Testament as well. But Paul, probably most famously persecutor of the church, is, is riding along on his horse uh, looking for some more Christians to you know, persecute, I guess. And he is knocked from his horse by Jesus. And Jesus says, I am Jesus. And for you to persecute the church is to persecute me. That's how closely we relate. And now you, I know you think you don't love me because you haven't, but you're going to love me. You're my chosen instrument. And instead of tearing the church apart, you're going to be a part of building it up. And so Paul is raised up to be a magnificent missionary. He doesn't, doesn't talk back to God and say, well, no, I don't think that's a great idea. Right? He sees Jesus and his whole life changes. He moves from being persecutor to being a preacher, from being a Pharisee to being an apostle. His true, life-changing repentance. I think of Zacchaeus. It's one of my favorite examples of this in, in Luke 19. You know the story, Jesus is kind of, uh, the kid's song, what's, how's it goes? A wee little man was he, there's a sycamore tree. Somebody, yeah? Y'all, y'all are with me? Yeah, something like that, something we little man, there's a tree. And so he's, he's this short, kind of stocky tax collector. People don't really like him because he takes advantage of them. And he's one of them, you know, part participating with Rome against Israel. It's a bad look. Not super popular, but probably pretty wealthy, right? And so uh, people don't like him. Jesus is coming into town. He's a semi-celebrity. And Zacchaeus wants to see this Jesus, wants to just lay eyes on him. And so the only way for him to get a visual is for him to, to climb up the, uh, the sycamore tree uh, we little man, he sycamore tree. So he gets up on the, the sycamore tree and Jesus comes through town and has the audacity to invite himself over to someone's house. I mean, in our culture, that doesn't happen a whole lot. I think I've done it to Mike a couple times. Like, I'm coming to your house. You can feed me. It's going to be awesome. But this is what Jesus does, right? I, I, let's read it. Leviticus. Leviticus. I, know, I just love it, huh? Uh, Luke. Luke. Chapter 19, verse 6 through 10. Jesus sees Zacchaeus and he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they, that's the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled, saying, He has come to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham, because the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus changes everything for this thief. He shows up and Zacchaeus' life changes. He says, I'm here, I'm coming to your house. And Zacchaeus, in response to Jesus saying, I'm coming to your house, he says, I'm with you, Jesus. I used to steal from people, but here I am restoring what was stolen. And I'm probably, he seems pretty generous. Imagine he's a picture of what we have in Ephesians verse 4, chapter 4, verse 28. The thief that no longer steals, but does honest work. So he might have enough to share with those who are in need. Jesus shows up and changes everything for Zacchaeus. And yet the crowd grumbles about it. See, in their minds, Zacchaeus should be the last person on the planet that Jesus would associate with. Zacchaeus should be the last person that Jesus should choose to have mercy on. He's an enemy of Israel. He's working with Rome. So they're mad. I mean, in their eyes, Jesus shouldn't be anywhere close to Zacchaeus. Ah. But God's grace is his to distribute however he sees fit. And though he might have been the least and last candidate for salvation in the world's eyes, he was first in God's eyes. God can do whatever he wants with his grace. First come last, and last become first. Jesus comes to seek and save the lost. He is the hound of heaven. He tracks down his people. Brother and sister, He has come for you, praise God. If you're not a Christian, He he may be coming for you this morning. You need merely to respond to Him with repentance and faith. Zacchaeus was just trying to get a visual on Jesus. And he ended up with completely new life. I want you to know you are not beyond the saving arm of God. It is longer and stronger than you could ever imagine. When Jesus shows up, he changes people's hearts, minds, and lives. Repentance is the spirit-empowered response to God's grace. Real repentance is not just a feeling. It's not just saying the right things. It's not even just doing the right things. It is a change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of life. It's turning from living according to my old will and my old desires towards following Jesus. It's taking off the old self and putting on the new self. So we need to ask, have I been practicing real repentance? Will I practice real repentance? And and what does that look like? I think 
real repentance manifests itself initially in a Christian's decision to be baptized. This is one of the ways we demonstrate that we are no longer part of the world, that we're turning from our sin, and that we are with King Jesus. We're putting on the the King Jesus t-shirt. That's the little flag we're putting in our car. Friends, if you are a Christian or you have become a Christian and you are not baptized, you haven't been baptized as a believer, you need to do that. It is a command from Jesus to repent and be baptized. It's not optional. One of the main missions of the church, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Well, how, do we, how does the church make disciples? It's to, our business is to be about making disciples. How do we do that? Well, by baptizing them into that doctrine that they've believed and teaching them more about it, more about God, baptizing and teaching. So if you are not a Christian, I'm sorry, if you're a Christian, you think you've put your faith in Jesus today or yesterday or 10 years ago, and you haven't been baptized, you ought to do that is a wonderful picture of what God has done in changing you. I love how Romans 6 describes this picture. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self, our old self, that's what we're putting off, the old self, was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And so repentance is this living out of being free from sin and death, that sin which used to ensnare us. And one of the first steps of Christian obedience, of, of repentance, is saying, I'm going to obey you, Jesus, by being baptized, because you have indeed buried my old self with you, right? You go down to that watery grave, and I have been raised to walk in the newness of life like you. And one day, my future is like yours. I will be resurrected. So real repentance shows up in baptism. And it also shows up continually in your everyday life. The whole of the Christian life is repentance. We don't get to repent just once and stop repenting after we've been baptized. We have to continually fight against sin. That's why we are told to over and over again. Galatians 5, verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. In Colossians 3.5, Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly within you. Friends, we are at war 
with our adversary and with our old self, our sin and those old sinful habits. And we must fight. Put to death what is earthly in you. Be off with the old and on with the new. Practice, not counterfeit repentance, which leads to death, but real repentance, which produces life without regret. If you choose to follow Jesus, you will never regret it. You will have life. So if you're a non-Christian, come. Jesus will give you rest in life. Christian, let the past die. Kill it. You have to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your kindness and your love. We thank you that you have had mercy on us. That we were your enemies. Who saves their enemies? You do. Your love is beautiful and scandalous. The world is, was appalled at your saving of Zacchaeus. Probably appalled at your saving of sinners like us. We thank you that indeed you are mighty to save. But we thank you that Christ died so that we might live. We thank you that he is raised so that we might walk in the newness of life. We thank you that he is coming again to redeem all things so that we might live with you and one another forever. To you be the glory. Amen.